at my glad welcome to you all as we worship together today. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles or uh, your electronic devices or to give your attention up to the screen. We will have the text of Genesis chapter 44, and we're going to go make our way through Genesis 45 verse 15 and continue this series of sermons entitled Becoming a Company of Peoples. Do something risky here. I'm going to read the vast majority of a very long text. And I want to invite you, if you would, to please give your full attention to the reading of God's holy and authoritative word because it is the Lord addressing us. We read this book like no other book. Please follow along. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up and follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, He spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants." He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and 
he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless the younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy. To my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me 
before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children. There I will provide for you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we continually marvel that through Scripture, through your holy word, you have disclosed yourself. You have revealed yourself. You've made yourself known to us. It's not just to make us informed. It's to cause us to be transformed. And so we ask that uh, your grace would be upon your word, your grace would come upon your people, that the power of your Holy Spirit would fall fresh on us, that you'd illuminate these things and so that our, not just our minds are taught, but our hearts are inflamed with affection for you and that you would produce um, a work in us that would join us together. Join us together, Lord, into a, a community, a spiritual community, a church of and for the nations. For your glory's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One month from today uh, will mark the five-year anniversary of the public launch of uh, Emmaus Road Church. I still tell people to this day, uh, regularly, planting this church has been the most exhilarating and satisfying thing I've ever done in my life. It's, um, it's also the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. It was just a couple weeks ago, there was a bunch of us um, together recounting the Lord's doing and building us into this spiritual community and it was moving, deeply affecting to hear others say, and I could say the same thing, this is the people with whom I want to get old and die. And uh, many of us, I believe, are tasting this amazing reality that Jesus is building his church, we're becoming a company of peoples. But of course, we also know from our experience that growing up into the likeness of Christ and into a spiritual community, as God means for it to be, 
cannot be separated from the messiness and the disappointments that are part of human relationships. Becoming a a life-giving spiritual community, becoming a healthy and harmonious company of peoples as it is referred to in Genesis 37 to 50. This is something that emerges at the intersection of divine grace and steady human effort. And my goal uh, in this sermon is to remind you that growing into a spiritual community is a process. That's what we've been seeing unfold here in these, in these chapters. Um, it's, a, it's a gospel-centric process. We, we need to remember that, right? We need to be constantly reminded of that. It doesn't all come together instantaneously. We are a piece of work, developing, becoming, growing up. Gospel community requires gospel truth and doctrine plus safety plus time. That's how it comes together. We need to be reminded of that. My other goal here is to encourage you again to make it your aim to continue learning, continue learning how to forgive and how to be forgiven. Because growing into a spiritual community depends. It depends on forgiving and being forgiven. Spiritual community is a result of God's grace and cultivating practices that sustain us and build us into each other's lives. And the most crucial practices that engender and sustain spiritual community are learning how to forgive and learning how to be forgiven. And that's what this text is about. It is a, it's a narrative that shows us the truth of two very explicit New Testament passages. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, which says, Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. So, we're going to give our attention to what does it mean to forgive as God forgives. We began to unfold it last week. We continue now. And the first truth is God's forgiveness is gracious. He offers it. He offers it as an expression of His generous goodness and kindness. This is God's disposition. Now, certainly one of the most remarkable things about Genesis chapter 44 is that when God, in His providence, presents Joseph with the golden opportunity to exact revenge on his brothers, he can get them. God just set it up for him. Get even with them. Pay them back for their heinous crimes committed against him. Joseph instead 
devises a complicated and costly plan for their redemption. The redemption of their relationship. This plan is actually initiated in the verses just prior to this in chapter 43 with this demand that Benjamin be brought down to Egypt and putting out this elaborate meal and this obviously favored treatment of the youngest brother. It's just a perfect setup. And Joseph advances his plan here now in chapter 44. But the aim of it all, the aim of it all is grace. It is the offer of the possibility of redemption. That's how God forgives. He's gracious. Second, forgiving as God forgives means understanding that forgiveness is conditional. Only those who repent and have saving faith are forgiven. And so the question that Moses answers in Genesis chapter 44 verses verse 1 through chapter 45 verse 15 is, are Joseph's brothers truly, sincerely repentant of their sin? No repentance, no forgiveness. And answering that question is the entire aim of Joseph's elaborate ruse. It is a test. It's a test in two parts. Part one of the test is described in Genesis 43, verse 34 through 44, verse 13. And it is set up in order to discover his brother's disposition particularly their disposition toward Benjamin. You see, Joseph wisely understands that if his brother's hearts were unchanged, if nothing had changed, they wouldn't think twice about disposing of Benjamin. So, Joseph lobs them a softball. He presents them with an easy opportunity to take their youngest brother out. And so in cooperation with Egyptian law enforcement, he frames Benjamin with an Egyptian felony. Benjamin is caught red-handed with the cup. He is charged with a capital offense. And the ruler of the land says, the rest of you can go free. You can go free. You can go home. You'll be done with this guy. And nobody will know. He even provides them with this alibi. He had had supplied Benjamin with five times as much of the adult beverages as he had the others. Oh, Dad, the whole night was somewhat sketchy. We're just not really quite sure what happened. We do know that Benjamin had a lot more to drink than we did. We don't know. How would we have known that he was going to take the cup? So in other words, if the brothers had done so much harm to Joseph, inflicted such suffering in his life, and hated Benjamin just as much as they hated him, well then how could they resist such an opportunity to get rid of him? But clearly, there had been an internal shift 
in their hearts as we see in verses 10 through 13. He who is found with the royal cup shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes and Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now, ripping clothes in those times was not a fashion statement. It was an expression of contrition and remorse. And rather than getting out while the getting was good, every brother returned with Benjamin to face the consequences of the crime. Part one of the test. Okay, let's check up about part two of the test, which is described in chapter 44, verses 14 to 34. And this is where Joseph gets to the real heart of the issue. In our discipleship huddles, we have a practice we call tracing the fruit back to the root. It's a part of our repent and believe time. That's what is going on here. We're going to trace the fruit back to the root. Look at verse 14. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. They fell before him to the ground. Verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold! We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Now that looks, that looks and sounds like humility. That looks and sounds like contrition. That looks and sounds like, wow, maybe these guys really have changed. But Joseph, he's tracing the fruit Back to the root. Look at verse 17. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And and, and that's where the root lies. Joseph probably suspected it all along that the jealousy, that the bitterness, that the murderous hatred, that the sale of his very life, it was just the fruit. That's just the fruit born of something much deeper. And the root, the deeper root is that Jacob loved Joseph and Benjamin And the rest of the brothers are just persona non grata. The the brokenness manifest in the rest of Jacob's sons, it it was a sinful response to Jacob's idolatrous favoritism toward Joseph and Benjamin. The root of the toxic and destructive fruit was their deep resentment and bitterness toward their father. 
And so before Joseph forgives, he aims to discern, had had the root issue been dealt with? Were the brothers truly repentant of their sinful response to their dad? And so listen carefully now to Judah's confession starting in verse 22. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Verse 24. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food. We said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. (laughs) My wife bore me two sons. Not twelve. Two. One left, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to, the, to shield. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if you do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So how can Joseph... Be certain that Judah and his brothers are sincerely repentant, truly changed. The burden of Judah's confession and his appeal to Joseph for mercy is focused clearly on the root of the matter. In spite of Jacob's hurtful reference yet again to only one wife and only two sons, Judah's appeal is focused squarely on care and concern and sympathy toward his father, Jacob. And once Joseph was convinced then of the authenticity of Judah's confession and changed heart, he then displayed a third component of true and godly forgiveness. God's forgiveness is a commitment. It's a commitment. It is a promise. It is a promise to pardon. It's a promise to not remember the offense. If we confess our sins and turn from them, 
entrusting ourselves to the atonement of our guilt in Jesus' death, then God will forgive us and then God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will remember our sins no more. Fine, fine, good. That's good that God remembers our sins no more. God can do these kinds of things. God is God. How can I do that? How can I do that? Loved ones, a crucial aspect of learning to forgive as God forgives is the ability, I believe, to trust the overarching purpose of God. Genesis 45, verse 5. Joseph says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That sounds like somebody who's forgiving. He's forgiving. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Well, how? How do we not be distressed? How do we not feel such self-disdain? And how is it that you're able to forgive like this? How? Why? For or because God sent me here before you to preserve life. It's because, verse 7, God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here. Really? (laughs) Really? It was not you who sent me here. But God, the ability to recognize that even when others sin against us, God is still up to something good in our lives and in their lives is foundational in learning how to forgive and growing up into spiritual community. It really is. But see, now, when you put it like that, (laughs) well, then the whole process of forgiveness seems, it's so simple, you know? Gee whiz, you know, just remember that God's always up to something good when people sin against you. And you, too, will be able to forgive, just like Joseph. Happy smile on your face. Let it go. In real life, of course, it's rarely that simple. I mean, for 20 long years, Joseph could not see pennies worth of evidence that God was going to work his suffering for good. It was probably just the opposite. Any hope of reconciliation with his brothers had to have been inconceivable to him. And so, too, it may take a long time for you to see what good God is accomplishing through the painful sins committed against you by others. You may need someone to come alongside you on your Emmaus Road to help you discern the fruit God is bringing out of your life in the land of your affliction and loss. But make no mistake, affliction is the soil in which the fruit of patience and endurance and perseverance and hope and Godliness and spiritual community grows most richly. And that brings us to a fourth 
matter. That is that God's forgiveness is linked, inextricably linked, to reconciliation. When God pardons sinners, He also begins a new relationship with them. God never forgives His enemies without being reconciled to His enemies and joined to those whom He has forgiven. In Christ, in union with Christ, joined to Christ, all that belongs to God is ours. And all that is ours belongs to God. And it is foreshadowed here in Genesis 45 verse 9 when Joseph says, Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell with me. In the land of Goshen, you shall be near me and your children and your children's children. There I will provide for you. All that is mine will be yours. And then he, and this is such a, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his brother's neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. And there's communion. Forgiving and being forgiven are essential in becoming spiritual community. Becoming a company of peoples becoming a church of and for the nations. We must learn not only how to forgive, but we, almost, we also must learn how to be forgiven. In some ways, that's just as challenging, right? I mean, in many ways... We're, we're so much more like Joseph's brothers than we'd like to admit. Yeah, we've been sinned against. Yes, people have harmed us. Yes, people have offended us. Yes, yes. Oh, but so many times we are the ones offending. We are the ones wounding our brothers and sisters. We are the ones betraying their trust. We are the ones out of our narcissistic souls using them to achieve our own ends and to satisfy our own desires. Our jealousy leads to murderous thoughts and sometimes harmful words through gossip and anger. Our souls are haunted, haunted like Joseph's brothers by deep-rooted guilt and shame that leaves our experience of community little more than what Dallas Willard was famous in saying, well-calculated distance. The question then is, who will step forward in our place to be our Judah, bearing our blame, enduring our condemnation, that we might go free. We've all sinned against God, against one another, in thought, word, deed, and daily continue to do so. And justice rightly demands 
death for our transgressions. But God did not pursue simple justice against us. Instead, He put forward a very complicated and very costly plan for our redemption. It's with grace in mind. Generous goodness and mercy. A plan that would both satisfy the claims of justice and also allow us to receive the mercy and the forgiveness we need in order to be reconciled to Him, restored to communion with Him. And so God sent His only Son, Jesus, into this world of affliction and pain for us. And His love for us, His love for us is so far greater than Jude's love for His Father. Jesus not only had to be willing to bear the punishment for another's sin, He also had to carry that willingness through to the end. Judah may have offered to be Joseph's slave, but it was Judah's greater son who actually bore the blame that we deserved. And he came to bear a lifetime of limitation and sickness and rejection and abuse, slavery. Jesus was born and suffered and died and rose again as part of God's great plan, both to save the lives of His people and to create a spiritual community through the suffering of a substitute. So here too, God's good purpose was achieved through His sovereign control over men's sinful actions. We meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And perhaps like Joseph's brothers, you struggle to feel forgiven. Because we don't feel forgiven, we search for peace by finding ways to somehow prove that we really are worthy of God's love. Oh, dear friends, our peace rests in knowing that God has forgiven us for the sake of our substitute, Jesus Christ. And God, therefore, says to you, as Joseph said to his brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves over your sin that voice of condemnation is from Satan and not from God yes our sin is great our sin is deep and it matters it matters more than we can rightly conceive so great so deep that nothing less than the death of the perfect son of God could possibly pay for it but through his precious blood The penalty is paid fully and finally. Jesus, all our trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us and made us yours through your great love. Pray with me.